All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? How do you get it? We'll deconstruct everything from motivation and mental health to anti-racism and addiction. Ultimately, the goal is to give you the tools and strategies that you need to live your most powerful life, being a force for good in the world and impacting the people around you in a positive way. Powerful is brought to you by me, your host, Jeff Kular. I help people change and build incredible teams. Welcome to the show. A realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship itself. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. Welcome back to Powerful. My name is Jeff Coulard, and as always, I'm thrilled that you're spending a bit of time with me to talk about important things that are happening in the world and how to make sense of those things through the lens of power, talking about power. And if you've been at all listening to the news lately, it is, for context, if you're listening to this down the road, it's June 4th, 2020. And as I'm talking to, into this microphone, there are riots and protests happening across the continent, continental United States in basically every major city. There are Black Lives Matter marches happening in Calgary, Alberta, where I'm uh, currently just outside of there. Um, there are protests happening in Berlin, in Germany, outside of the American embassy there. Uh, there are protests happening all over the world around injustice, um, particularly when it comes to the black community and and the racial tensions and race war that's been happening for a very long time for our neighbors to the south. But let's face it, racism is alive and well in lots of other parts of the world, including Canada. And actually, just recently, I noticed that Stockwell Day, a politician of the conservative stripe, has recently been dismissed from some board positions that he's been enjoying uh, being a part of um, because of some pretty ill-thought-out comments around race and racism. And so this conversation is going to be pretty timely, and it's something I want to wanted to do for a while. And so let's buckle up and let's talk about privilege and why privilege is something that we should actually stop talking about. Uh, not because it doesn't exist. So listener, you know, I believe that privilege is very much a thing in the world. I benefit from both white privilege and from male privilege and probably some other types of privilege if we really dig into it. Um, but I don't think it's actually that helpful to call it privilege. Um, whenever somebody says, you know, check your privilege or check your, your male privilege or your white privilege, um, what happens is our defense mechanisms go up and we start to th think, I don't have privilege, you know, because our idea of privilege or a lot of people's idea of privilege is about economic privilege is about a picture in your head of the family that has a nice house in the Hamptons and hires a private tennis instructor to give their teenage kids, uh, private tennis lessons. And that's our, like we view privilege as this economic thing, right? And so it's super easy to discount it or to disqualify it and say, you don't know me. I'm not privileged, right? Because I struggle to put food on the table. Sometimes I worry about the mortgage or the car payments or the bills that are coming due. And so by calling it privilege, I think we automatically kick up that defense mechanism and it continues to polarize and drive people apart. And I don't think it's accurate. 
I think it goes much deeper than privilege. I don't think privilege is a strong enough word to describe the benefits that come with being white in this society in North America, being male in this society in North America. I think we need to start calling it what it is. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, uh, you probably know where I'm going. We need to start calling it power. We need to have conversations about power and not get sidetracked, not get derailed into conversations about privilege and and this all lives matter versus black lives matter. Like all of that just flares up and gets in the way and starts to obscure what's really happening, which is um, power negotiations. We're in the midst of a society-wide power negotiation between fundamentally, you know, black Americans and white Americans and the the government and the police in particular, uh, law enforcement around what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And I'm going to play you a little clip from Trevor Noah, who's the host of The Daily Show. He released about a 13-minute monologue the other day about these issues um, that have been sparked by the the murder of George Floyd, or the suspected murder. There's Some of those officers involved have been charged with second-degree murder in this case. Um, But I want you to take a, a listen to his take on society's contract, because I think it's a really important place for us to start this conversation. That for me was an interesting culmination of everything. I saw so many people online saying, these riots are disgusting. This is not how a society should be run. You do not loot and you do not burn and you do not, this is not how our society is built. And that that actually triggered something in me where I was like, man, okay, society, What? but what is society? And fundamentally, when you boil it down, society is a contract. It's a contract that we sign as human beings amongst each other. We sign a contract with each other as people, whether it's spoken or unspoken, and we say, amongst this group of us, we agree in common rules, common ideals, and common practices that are going to define us as a group. That's what I think a society is. It's a contract. And as with most contracts, the contract is only as strong as the people who are, who are abiding by it. But if you think of being a black person in America who is living in Minneapolis or Minnesota or any place where you're not having a good time. Ask yourself this question when you watch those people, what vested interest do they have in maintaining the contract? Why, like, why don't we all loot? Why, why don't, why doesn't everybody take, why doesn't, because we've agreed on things. There are so many people who are starving out there. There's so many people who don't have, there's so many people, there are people who are destitute. There are people who, when the virus hits, and they don't have a second paycheck already broke, which is insane, but that's, that's the reality. But still, think about how many people who don't have, the have-nots, say, you know what, I'm still gonna play by the rules even though I have nothing because I still wish for this society to work and exist. And then some members of that society, namely black American people, watch time and time again how the contract that they have signed with society is not being honored by the society that has forced them to sign it with them. When you watch Ahmad Arbery being shot and you hear that those men have been released and were it not for the video and the outrage, those people would be living their lives. What part of the contract is that in society? When, when you see George Floyd on the ground and you see a man losing his life in a way that no person should ever have to lose their life. At the hands of someone who's supposed to enforce the law, what part of the contract is that? 
And a lot of people say, well, what good does this do? Yeah, but what, what good doesn't it do? That's the question people don't ask the other way around. What good does it do to loot Target? What is it, how does it help you to loot Target? Yeah, but how does it help you to not loot Target? Answer that question. Because the only reason you didn't loot Target before was because you were upholding society's contract. There is no contract if law and people in power don't uphold their end of it. And that's the thing I think people don't understand sometimes, is that, is that we need people at the top to be the most accountable because they are the ones who are basically setting the tone and the tenor for everything that we do in society. It's the same way we tell parents to set an example for their kids. The same way we tell captains or coaches to set an example for their players. The same way you tell teachers to set an example for their students. The reason we do that is because we understand in society that if you lead by example, there is a good chance that people will follow that example that you have set. And so if the example law enforcement is setting is that they do not adhere to the laws, then why should the citizens of that society adhere to the laws when in fact the law enforcers themselves don't? There is no contract if people in power don't uphold their end of it. And I would argue that in most cases in society, when we start to look at the power dynamics and the negotiation of power, that it's not actually a negotiation. You know, why would anyone sign a contract where part of that contract was they were going to be at a substantially higher risk of being killed at the hands of law enforcement than anyone else in the society? Would you sign that contract? I certainly wouldn't sign that contract. I would negotiate something else into that contract. Um, but the contract in society hasn't exactly been a negotiation. It's been a contract that's been built by force. And it's been built at the hands of, let's face it, a colonial settler state. Um, the colonization of North America by Europeans 300, 400 years ago um, is still playing out today. And it's not something that we can ignore and wish away. And what about a way, which tends to be the, the kind of the default is that people will say, you know, I'm not racist. And we're quickly getting to a place where that's not good enough. It's not enough to not be racist because silence and being complicit in participating in a racist structure um, might as well be the same thing. There's a saying by Maya Angelou, who, you know, a prolific black American poet and writer who said, do the best you can until you know better and then do better. And we're at that place as a society. We know better. We know that the systems that we've built, the structures that we've built around power in the society have marginalized and oppressed large segments of the population, not just black Americans, our indigenous brothers and sisters, um, immigrants into this country, men versus women, you know, elderly people. There's a lot of ageism in society. There's a lot of isms in society. We can point to lots of different isms and we get lost in that conversation. We get lost in the gender conversation or sexual identity or language or religion or politics. And when you step back from the, those conversations and realize that this is all just about power and power is just the ability to affect change and get your needs met, then that's the conversation that we should be having. We should be talking about the structures that we have, the systems, the policies, the procedures, the things that reinforce a system that is inherently inequitable, inherently racist, and doing better about it. 
And so you can refer to a few conversations that I've had on this podcast. I think of Paul Gorski and Equity Literacy and Kelly Wickham-Hurst about being black at school, two earlier episodes that you can all have links in the show notes, and you can go have a listen to those because there's some very practical insights and wisdom that both of those guests shared with me. But let's get back to the topic at hand, which is the problem with privilege, or the problem with calling it privilege, these conversations about white privilege or male privilege. And we'll just kind of focus on, you know, white privilege for the moment. Um, it's so much deeper than that. When I think about privilege and when I think about, you know, the benefits that I enjoy being a white man in this world that we've built, I just don't think that calling it privilege does the conversation justice and articulates the discrepancy between the experience that I have and that my kids will likely have and other people have who don't have that privilege, right? I'm never going to have to sit my teenage son down and warn him about the police. I'm never going to have to tell him to be really, really careful about walking alone in a neighborhood that he's not familiar with when he's older, right? Or going running, in the case of Ahmed Aubrey, who was shot to death while running, going for a jog in his neighborhood. I'm never going to have to have that conversation. And should that be, should we call that privilege? Because that sounds a heck of a lot more of a benefit that I enjoy and that my kids enjoy than just privilege than, you know, a tennis instructor, right? When we go back to the example of, you know, kind of the default position around privilege is often economic and not this deeper sense of safety. Is, Is that privilege or is that power? I'd prefer to look at it as power because we can start to have conversations about power that we can't seem to be able to have with each other when we call it privilege. And so that's what I'm going to advocate is that you think about the benefits that you accrue, the things that you can do in society that we might consider privilege. Try calling it power and see how that changes the conversation or at least the narrative in your own head. And then start to ask yourself, where does that power come from? And why do I enjoy that power? And other people don't. And the point that Trevor made in his monologue about, you know, why doesn't everyone loot and riot and protest? was because I have the power to not do that, right? I don't have to do that to get my needs met. I don't have to do that to be heard. And to bring this conversation a little bit closer to home, let's talk a little bit about some of the recent history in this country here in Canada for my Canadian listeners. Uh, You're probably familiar by now with the idea of residential schools, which ran for about 120 years from the 1870s into the 1990s, the last Indigenous residential school was closed in 1996, which is, well, certainly within my lifetime. And so to use the example of privilege versus power, of how we define the benefits that accrue based on ethnicity in this country, um, is it really a privilege to not have your children ripped from you by law enforcement, by the RCMP, and shipped off to a school for 10 or 11 months out of the year where they were likely to be maltreated at the hands of church-run schools, right? Is that privilege, right? Or is that power? I tend to think that that is power and powerlessness is what we're talking about here, not this sense of privilege and, and underprivileged. I don't think that does the conversation justice. I don't think that, you know, shying away from a conversation about power is doing any good, right? Because we've been trying to solve these problems for a very long time. There's been a lot of conversation and a lot of effort put in by a lot of people to shift the needle on these issues, and they don't seem to be getting better. And so maybe 
our diversity and inclusion and equity efforts aren't actually that fruitful because we're not having the types of conversations that we need to be having. Maybe we're scratching the surface of we're dealing with the symptoms of power negotiations and the society's contract with each other and the imbalance of that contract. We're not talking about that. We're talking about all the isms. And one of the things that happens in that context is that the conversation about power, this negotiation of power in our world gets really fragmented. And we get a lot of very niche conversations and we get a lot of protests and efforts being made to move the needle on something that's meaningful to one group that is marginalized or oppressed or experiencing the disadvantages of not having power, like we're currently seeing in the riots and protests in the states around the Black Lives Matter movement, and not to diminish any one movement or another. Um, but it, it draws the focus very intensely on a, a narrow slice of the conversation. In this case, police brutality in the United States and the, again, the odds of a black man being killed by a police officer in the states is about one in a thousand over the course of their lifetime, which is, if you know anything about mortality statistics, quite alarmingly high. Like I said, not to diminish any one movement or another, but if we take a step back and we question the society's contract with each other, our contract with our neighbors and the people in our communities, and the negotiation that doesn't really take place around power, I wouldn't say. Um, it's just this kind of default status quo. Um, well, I think we've got a lot of work to do. And I think that it starts with having a shared language that we can understand and use. And so I'm going to advocate that we shift the conversation towards talking about power, because I believe it's the underpinnings of all of these challenges. And a little bit of a shameless plug, if you're interested in learning more about power, the Right Use of Power organization, I am a board member, and you can check them out at www.rightuseofpower.org. And I do a lot of training and work and coaching around issues of power with leaders in a wide range of sectors. And so if you're interested in something for your team that goes beyond this diversity and inclusion um, lunch and learns because i don't think they're actually moving the needle for our organizations and for our people i don't think they're meaningfully serving our conversations very well then get in touch and let's chat um, and stay tuned for next week's episode where we're actually going to dig into this idea of black lives matter versus all lives matter because i think there's lots of rich conversation to be had there in the meantime there's lots that you can do to learn more about how you can go from being not racist to being actively anti-racist. And so if you check out the blog post that's associated with this podcast, you'll see a bunch of links to recommended reads and resources and you know different authors that you should follow and practical steps that you can take if you're an ally of and wanting to be an ally um, for a marginalized or oppressed group. Um, I'll give you some places to start. So thanks again for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, this is one that I really would love for you to share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks so much. And we will talk to you again very soon.